0: Today, already, most of you, probably many, many times, have added to the data economy. Maybe it was making an online purchase, visiting a website, or even just having a conversation within the earshot of one of your many smart devices. Big business knows more about you than you know about yourself and is selling that information to the highest bidder. Government, too, is a hoarder of your data, even if it doesn't always use it very effectively. Now, most of us understand some of this and more of us are worried about it. But can we expect to tackle the excesses of the data economy without asking some very hard questions about what really matters to us? Not just what we want, but what we might have to give up to regain our privacy. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. To discuss all these questions about the data economy and in quite personal terms, what does it mean to us? What should we be doing? I'm delighted to be joined by Carissa Belis, who's author of a wonderful book called Privacy is Power. It's a fascinating book, Chris. One of the things I loved about it, it's partly a kind of critique of what's going on in the world, but then there's an awful lot in your book about what needs to change in terms of policy. And then there's even some stuff at the end about what we personally can do. There's a real sense of of kind of crusading zeal about the book. You really feel strongly about this stuff, don't you? I do. And you've written the book, not just because you want us to understand it, but you've written the book because you really do think we need to do something and we need to do it pretty urgently.
1: That's right. I think we're at a crossroads and it could go either way. We could go further into the data economy and put ourselves more and more at risk. And I fear that we could really live through a catastrophe as a result of this economic system, or we could make it better. We can regulate, we are in time to delete some of the data that we have that is jeopardizing our security, and we can fix the data economy to make sure that it respects or rights.
0: And just before we get more into the book, you're a associate professor at the Faculty of Philosophy in the Institute for Ethics in AI at Oxford. And I'm interested, as an academic, taking such a strong position, this book is a very political book, not kind of simplistically partisan, but it's a very political book. How do you balance the kind of Objective rigor expected of academics with the passionate views that you hold about the area that you're researching?
1: That's a very good question. So, this project started as an academic project and academic research. And I've done a lot of research about the right to privacy, the history of privacy, privacy related obligations. And the more I researched the topic, the more I thought. I had a duty to inform people because people are very badly informed about this topic and it's not their fault. Companies have a very big interest and also governments in people not knowing a lot about how the data economy works. And I thought that I hadn't found the book that I wish I had been able to read when I first got interested in this topic. A book that was very straightforward, to the point, short, that told things as they were and didn't like beat around the bush.
0: It absolutely does that.
1: Thank you. I wrote this book, yes, as an academic, because I've researched this topic, and I know more about it than the average citizens because I've had the luxury of the, having time to read about these things. But also, and maybe first and foremost, as just a concerned citizen.
0: Now, the first half of the book is a kind of critique of the data economy. And people who don't fully understand the scale of this, the commercial exploitation, but also the growing way in which government collects and uses data. You just need to read this. If you don't read this, you don't really know what's being done to you. I don't want to go into that so much now because, well, let's actually illustrate some of the elements of this by looking at a couple of stories that have been in the news recently. So first of all, the story about WhatsApp And the idea that WhatsApp is now going to be making some of the data that was in WhatsApp, which many people thought the great thing about WhatsApp, fully encrypted, fully private, and that some of this data is now going to be accessed by parent company, Facebook parent company. Tell me, Carissa, how the story of WhatsApp, the controversy of WhatsApp illustrates some of the themes of your book.
1: It's a really nice example because it's one that we see over and over again, First, there's a big company like Facebook that primarily earns its money through personal data, through selling access to us and from categorizing people into different boxes. And they buy a company like WhatsApp and WhatsApp was really previously geared And they promised that they will never share data between Facebook and WhatsApp. That was in 2014. In 2016, they go back on their word and they start sharing data. And this latest reminder is just another reminder of how these big tech companies, on the one hand, break their promises time and again. So really, whatever they say doesn't mean anything anymore. But furthermore, there is this kind of ever-intrusive policies and terms and conditions that are not only always more intrusive than than the past one, but also that are completely non-negotiable. So take it or leave it. Either you accept these conditions and then you get to keep all your contacts and your conversations and what you've already been used to for years, or you just have to leave and you can't use this anymore. It's really quite authoritarian in that sense.
0: Yeah. And the the companies, when they get caught out, they often it seems to me without any kind of credibility at all, say, oh, this was an accident. Oops, so we didn't really mean this to happen. But actually, their strategy, it reminds me slightly of my own kind of eight-year-old daughter when she's in a kind of grumpy mood. She's always trying to just push at the boundaries, see how far she can go, see how many demands that she can make. It's a strategy to get what she wants. And in a way, the company is Are rather like that. They're constantly pushing, aren't they, the boundaries of what's acceptable to try to expand their commercial opportunities and to expand their control over our data.
1: Exactly. And they count on us for getting these things. They count on us on being exhausted and kind of too tired to fight them and too hooked on their products to give a fight. And it's really quite devious in a sense.
0: Here's another example in the news right now, and that's that Huawei have been caught out because of a patent they submitted, which offered software which would enable, amongst other things, people to be able to identify members of the Uyghur group. Tell us about how that story also illustrates some of the themes of your book.
1: So if we look at surveillance historically, it is very often related to authoritarian tendencies and to tendencies that identify certain groups of people that are already disadvantaged and then further disadvantage them or persecute them. So one example is the Uyghurs in in China. And in the past, we have many other examples, like in the genocide in Rwanda, in the Second World War, it was Jewish people. And one of the things that we have forgotten in the digital age is this history of privacy. And part of the importance of privacy is, is keeping us safe from these kinds of persecutions because we never know what kind of data will be sensitive in the future. So to be Jewish in the 1900s wasn't that much of a problem. And then suddenly in the 1930s, it was very, very sensitive data. And that's one reason for why we should protect privacy, even when it's not obvious exactly what the risk is.
0: And that I thought was a really interesting aspect of your argument, which is that you do think that we underestimate the importance of privacy to our individual and our collective well-being. And so in a book which is about technology and about data, you argue passionately for us to understand and recognize the importance of privacy as a social good.
1: That's right. And I think we used to understand this a lot better in the past, and we sort of forgot the lesson. And we forgot it for various reasons. One is that tech companies had a very good reason to try to convinces that privacy wasn't important anymore, so the narrative that privacy is part of the past and not relevant anymore was very convenient to them and they peddled for it very hard. But also because in the digital age, the loss of privacy and the negative consequences from that are a lot more abstract than they used to be. So say you went for a job interview in, I don't know, the 1950s, and your prospective employer asked you whether you plan to have any children in in the near future. It was very obvious how your answer to that question might affect your chances of getting the job. Whereas today, we might be experiencing exactly the same thing. Data brokers might be collecting certain kinds of data about you that suggests that you might want to have children, like the things you look up online, your age, what you've read recently, etc., And they might sell it to a prospective employer, but you'll never connect that data that you lost six months ago, that you didn't even notice that you lost it, with your prospective employer denying your job application because you'll never get an explanation. And it's very hard to police that kind of discrimination. So in this way, the digital age has disconnected losses of privacy and bad effects, and it has helped us forget the importance of privacy.
0: But is part of the reason this has happened, Carissa, to do with the fact that we also live in an age where people choose to open themselves up to the world in quite a remarkable ways. So there's two things going on here. First of all, people are simply much more willing, apparently, to be open about you know everything from their political opinions to their sexuality to you know their interior decoration particularly on Instagram but on other platforms as well so first of all we kind of seem to be willing to be a lot more open but secondly we don't just share that with friends you know we'll share that with the entire world anybody who chooses to follow us on any of these platforms so to what extent is the apparent insatiable desire that many people have to put themselves on display, to what extent is that connected to our loss of understanding of the importance of privacy?
1: That is a very important element. And it's an element that social media has really kind of exploited to their benefit. Human beings are very social animals. We need other people to survive and we need to feel like we are accepted and we need to feel like we fit in a group And in these times, particularly during the pandemic, we can feel very isolated. And so the temptation and the pull to share things online and to connect with others is very, very, very great. But one of the things about technology that makes it tricky is that it can really magnify all the effects that we do. So that, you know, in the past, There was only so many people you could connect with, even if you were like the most extroverted person in the planet and you made all the effort to connect with as many people as possible. You could only connect with a handful just because of physical barriers. And what technology does is that suddenly you can connect with millions of people. And that first idea is very attractive. And it's only when the bad consequences of that begin to reveal themselves that we realize, well, maybe this is not such a great idea or maybe it has disadvantages. And by then it's too late. You can't recall your data. So for instance, reading one book that I read a few years ago that I thought was interesting, I forget what it's called right now, but it's about people who have been shamed online. I think it's called So You Have Been Publicly Shamed. And it tells stories about people who wanted to share something, maybe a joke, maybe a bit of an edgy image online. And they're just imagining that their friends will see it. And suddenly they become viral and they are the target of comments by millions of people. And what that does to our human mind is really destroys us. We're not built to withstand that kind of public shaming. And that's just a social aspect of it. On top of it, there's this whole corporate and government surveillance that is exploiting these impulses that people have. And those are usually not taken into account when you write that tweet, when you post that on Facebook, it's very rare that people are actually aware of how a company might use that in the future. For instance, when they share about their kids, how that might affect their kids' future.
0: Yeah, the book, by the way, is by John Ronson. I can strongly, even though it's a few years old now, I can strongly recommend it. So you've been publicly shamed, it's called. I think what's interesting here for me, is is that in a sense, what we're being told is that there is a necessary trade-off here. And it's a bit like the attitude that red-top newspapers take to celebrities or to politicians, which is to say, look, you have chosen to be in an area of life where you want to be constantly reported. You want your speech to be reported. You want your new movie to be reported. If you are in the business of getting as much profile as possible, then you cannot complain if we decide to tell the world things about you that you would rather not. You're not allowed to say, well, I only want to show the world part of myself. If you're in the business of showing the world yourself, well, you have to show the world everything. In a way, do you think that's an implicit idea here is that if we you know, want to display ourselves on Instagram or whatever, as a society, if the world is full of people who apparently do want to share stuff, well, you know, the price you've got to pay for that is that you'll have to share everything.
1: That's a really good point. First of all, I think we should distinguish between certain kinds of people and certain kinds of businesses that need that kind of attention to survive. So for instance, if you're a business, you want everybody to know about you because if not, they're not going to buy your product. If you're an actor, you want to be as famous as possible because you know that will bring you more movies and more contracts and so on from just ordinary people. If you're an accountant, if you are a waitress, if you're a teacher, you really don't need that kind of attention. And it can come at a very steep price. And some of what we're seeing right now is that we're living without any backstage. So Erwin Goffman, a sociologist, distinguished between front stage and backstage. And he argued that having a backstage is fundamental to human relationships and to human well-being. So for instance, in a restaurant, the front stage is where the tables are and where the waiters are all and waitresses are all well-dressed and very polite and they present the food very well and the kitchen is the backstage and that's where people can relax and the preparing of food takes place and there are some things that customers wouldn't want to see because it would kind of take away some of the magic of being in a restaurant and having that backstage is very relaxing and necessary to have a good front stage and in the same way you know he argued that's that's the way we structure life whether it's in a classroom or whether it's just hanging out with friends or not. We always need a backstage, a bathroom in which we can close the door and kind of relax and and let ourselves go a bit. And in a sense, we have created a digital realm in which there's no backstage. And that is incredibly taxing to the human mind. And it's also changing our culture in very negative ways because it pushes us into fitting in with others. And so it really goes against creativity, it goes against independent thinking, There's a reason why Virginia Woolf talked about having a room of one's own to write. Human beings need a kind of separation from others to really have autonomy. So that's one thing. Another response is that this deal that we struck, you know, you call it a trade-off. The deal was sealed before we knew what we were getting into. Nobody I know realized what they were giving up when they first opened an email account. I certainly didn't. So this narrative that we just struck a deal and it's a fair deal, that came many, many years, about a decade after the deal was struck, and, and we felt that there was nothing we could change about it. A third response is that even if that were true, even if you know we, you could argue that people are actually consenting to this deal and they know what they're getting into, we can still think that it's too steep a price for society. So it's creating these polarizing views. It's separating people into individual informational ghettos or silos, And it's fracturing the public sphere in a way that is destroying some of the public good that we as a society want to preserve.
0: So this, it seems to me, is is absolutely the heart of the argument. And it was the thing that had the biggest impact on me. I mean, the whole book is fascinating. But then in a sense, we are going to have to make privacy more important in our lives and in society. This data economy is not going to be controlled unless we do decide that privacy matters more. And one element of that is that we tend to be quite politically partisan about privacy, don't we? Which is that, you know, people on the left might say, well, no, I completely agree with you that Facebook and Google shouldn't be able to have this information and pass it all around – But then maybe in the last few days, they would have been quite relaxed about face recognition technology being used to capture people who made the assault on the Senate building, for example. So our attitude to privacy seems to kind of depend a little bit on our other ideological predispositions, the other things that matter to us. How hopeful are you that we can take a more general understanding of the importance of privacy, even when defending privacy means inconveniencing ourselves or making some of the things we want to achieve as a society more difficult?
1: I'm more optimistic than I was a few years ago. There's a variety of reasons for that. One is that we are seeing legislation being passed that years ago we thought was completely impossible to pass. So that gives us hope. Another reason is that even though, yes, privacy is very politically laden, it's actually one of those few causes that people in very opposite sides of the spectrum can agree on. And this is something that, for instance, in the United States, Republicans and Democrats can agree on. And that makes me feel that we have more of a chance to regulate it properly. And the third reason, and perhaps the most important one, is that after 9-11, the general consensus seemed to be that we had to give up our privacy in order to attain more security. And the hope was that if governments could make a copy, literally a copy of the data that companies like Google were collecting, then, you know, the more data they would have, the more they could prevent terrorism. Now, it turns out that terrorism is just not the kind of thing that big data can prevent because it's such a rare event. And big data is good at identifying patterns within troves of data. So, you know, big data is very good at knowing what you will buy today or, or the next day because billions of people are buying things every day. But terrorism is so rare that it's never going to get it. No matter how much data we would have had, it would have been impossible to predict that somebody would use a pot to commit an attack, say, on the Boston Marathon. And more and more governments are realizing that having so much personal data just stored there and us not being very good at protecting it is a huge national security threat. I think it was last year or or the year before, the New York Times, two reporters on the New York Times who weren't very tech savvy, tried to get a hold of the president of the United States location through data that they got from a data broker. And they managed to do that. They managed to get location on the phone of a Secret Service agent, and that way they could know where the president was. And if the president of the United States is so vulnerable, that makes the country incredibly vulnerable. And I think this is something that's going to motivate governments into better regulating data.
0: So I, I have no difficulty at all with strongly supporting your proposal that we should ban personalized advertising. I, I completely agree with that. It's intrusive. It's annoying. And it doesn't even work. And people buy into this. Companies spe- spend a lot of money on it. But as you say, I think in the book, it doesn't, there's not much evidence that it works. So we can agree. Let's get rid of personalized advertising and the sale of data that lies behind it. No No problem. Okay. harder case. I'm the chief executive of an organization, the RSA. We have 30,000 fellows. I think it's useful to know what bits of the RSA website, what bits of RSA content the fellows visit and look at, because it might enable me to be able, because we generate an enormous amount of content, to be able to direct them to bits of content that might be of particular interest to them, Would you say that I should resist that desire, that the benefits that might come to a fellow of having content which is better suited to their interests is not worth the fact that I'm, I guess, collecting that information for the benefit of the RSA?
1: So not necessarily. The devil is in the details, as in most cases. Suppose you ask people for what you want. And it's very clear what you want and the kind of data that you'll be collecting and so on. Suppose it's not very sensitive data and you won't use it to infer further sensitive data. Suppose you will delete it every month. And suppose you have incredible cybersecurity provisions and so on, then it might be perfectly fine to do it.
0: So this goes back, doesn't it, to your metaphor that you use in the book with asbestos, which is you know, that there are circumstances where you might use something which has got toxic potential, but you need to be incredibly careful about the context in which you do it.
1: Exactly. And even if, you know, I think in this case we agree, but even if we were to disagree, I think we have to keep in mind that we agree on the most important thing. And that's huge. I don't want to give the impression that because people disagree in certain details about privacy, then, then, you know, oh, it's all a matter of opinion and it's just relative and then, you know, we just shouldn't do anything about it. Like, really, what's important is to dismantle this system that's incredibly toxic, and then we can figure out the details of how do we deal with personal data when it's useful in a way that doesn't intoxicate our lives.
0: Okay, like I get that point, Christopher. I'm still going to ask you another hard case, which is, you know, I'm a kind of soft paternalist when it comes to public services. I think that if public services can help people, it should help people and not always wait to be asked to be helped. So I have a friend who works for a local authority, and one of the things that the local authority did quite early on in COVID was to analyse its records of people's payments of council tax and other things in order to be able to identify those people who were probably most at risk of defaulting on their rent or their council tax, for the simple purpose of reaching out to them and seeing if they could help them in some way, help them before they got into a situation of debt. I want to ask you again, is that a case where you have some sympathy given the objective that's being sought there? Because actually, of course, that data is very, very sensitive data. We got into the wrong hands because it's about people's debt and their economic vulnerability.
1: Yeah, I feel torn about that kind of case. Partly because it depends on whether the government is competent or not. And unfortunately, often, they're not. And there's some evidence to show that some of these programs, people who were included in the program end up worse off than people who weren't included in the program and who maybe should have uh, based on their details. It's a really difficult case. In general, I think it depends on whether... People trust the government to be competent. So if you trust your government and your government offers you help, then presumably you will be happy about it. If you distrust your government, then you want them to know as little about you as possible. So again, it's a case in which consent is going to be very important and it's going to legitimize some of the actions that government makes. But also, it will depend on how good governments are in keeping that data safe. And again, unfortunately, governments are incredibly bad at it at the moment. I mean, in the UK, there have been cases of council that you go on online and it turns out that your data is being scraped and sold. We've had cases now with COVID of, you know, 18,000 medical records got exposed by mistakes. And in another case, uh, the companies that were being used in pubs with the QR codes to register people for COVID purposes, that data got sold on. I mean, I'm sorry to be so vague, but it really, the details are really important.
0: No, no, I, I don't think that's vague at all. And and I think that part of the challenge of when we talk about technology, it goes back to a point that I think Evgeny Moritzov made many, many years ago, which is where he said, look, you know, you should resist technological determinism. Technology doesn't necessarily, no technology necessarily leads to social consequences, but you should also resist a kind of agnosticism, because each bit of technology contains different kinds of possibilities and potentials and dangers. And in the end, one can have a general conversation as we're having, but actually the particular design of Twitter or WhatsApp or Instagram or, or anything else, the features of the detailed design of every platform, every bit of software, every app. And that's one of the reasons, isn't it, Chris, that we have the difficulty because the challenge is that by far and away the greatest investment that is being made in designing these softwares and these apps and these platforms is being made by big business in order to benefit big business. That's the challenge, isn't it?
1: Exactly, in a context in which personal data is the main fuel of the internet, so you always have to distrust. And trust here is so important. And one reason why we should invest more in developing tools to protect privacy by design and just technologically is that too many promises have been broken. So, for instance, in Singapore, the latest news is that the government had promised that COVID data wasn't going to be used by the police, and lo and behold, now it's being used Mm -hmm. by the police. So in the case we are talking about with COVID in the UK and, say, identifying people who might be at risk of missing a loan, you know, it sounds great if that data is only used for that. But then if one year down the line, you learn that that data was sold, and then because of that, that person didn't get a job, then -hmm. it doesn't sound as great. And we can't trust people's word, first, because they can break them, governments change, CEOs change. But secondly, because we are very bad at keeping data safe. We really are just as human beings. We, have, we haven't gotten very good at that. So it's much better to be able to have a technology that doesn't allow certain data to be treated in certain ways by design so that you don't have to trust anyone's word for it.
0: No, and having worked in government, I can see that entirely, that government might make all sorts of assurances, but then circumstances change. And the point about data, isn't it, is it's it's a constant temptation. It's really like somebody who says they want to give up alcohol, but then every day gets crates of wine delivered to their front door, you know, sooner or later, the fact that this stuff is here, you're gonna to succumb to temptation, which is why is we need to design things differently. And and for example, one of the many policies that you advocate is that data should be deleted after a period of time as a matter of course. So very powerful arguments. And as I said at the beginning, Chris, one of the things that's important about your book is that you go through Some of the things that we need to do, you talk about banning the sale of data, you talk about banning personalized advertising, you talk about a kind of fiduciary duty for those who are involved in the collection and use of data. You talk about the need to take cybersecurity much more seriously. This is quite a broad policy agenda that's developing, isn't it?
1: Yeah, we can't have just a magic pill that fixes all the problems. And we really have two decades behind us of letting business model thrive that is very, very toxic and has had very different consequences.
0: And do you sense a building momentum here? I mean, the good thing about the WhatsApp story is that it's really led to a backlash, hasn't it? Not just a kind of political backlash, but a lot of people have got rid of their WhatsApp and they've signed up to one of the platforms that is still adhering to a commitment to genuine privacy?
1: Yeah, they've signed up to Signal, most of them. And I think, you know, there's reason for hope. That doesn't mean that success is guaranteed. I think this could go really, really badly still. But more and more people are becoming aware of privacy, asking more from companies. Governments are wanting to regulate big tech for many different reasons. I'm hopeful that Biden will be much more cooperative than Trump in the international... Realm, And I think that the West needs to form a coalition in order to face a threat like those of China and Russia that are really good at hacking and that don't have a lot of respect for privacy.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point. If we don't clear up our act in liberal democracies, then we're not in a position to be able globally to demand that those countries that have different values and priorities behave in a more reasonable way and of course the data economy is a global data economy and also the misuse of data is a global phenomenon whether it's authoritarian governments or criminal conspiracies or whatever let's just finish Christopher talking about where is it that change comes from because i've always really believed that difficult public policy challenges like the challenge of how we get hold of privacy again as you say it's never one thing it's a, it's a combination of forces so it seems to me that If there's hope, it lies in a kind of benign convergence of four forces. First of all, greater public awareness, which I think there is evidence of, and your book, of course, is an important contributor to that. Regulation, you know, GDPR, it's not perfect, but it has made a difference. And, you know, certainly at least in the European Union, there is a commitment, I think, to try to keep maintaining and updating and applying regulation to keep trying to keep a hold on this situation. To an extent, there is big companies being more worried about their reputation. You know, we've talked about the fact that a lot of that is insincere, but nevertheless, you can see from the reaction that has taken place in Facebook to the WhatsApp story over the last few days, that big companies are sensitive to all of this because they can see that it's now starting to drive the opinion of regulators and customers. And also new companies that actually are ethical, that realise there are ways that you can make money, provide a service, do something useful that don't involve the excesses of the data economy. Is that the kind of mix of forces that gives you hope?
1: I think that's absolutely right and very well, well put. Maybe a fifth one that's related to the first one, to public awareness, is just cultivating a culture of privacy. As we become more aware of the importance of privacy and we remember these lessons from the past, we shouldn't kind of buy in the narrative that we should share as much as possible online. So, you know, we should be careful with things like exposing other people. We shouldn't upload pictures of other people. We should ask for their consent. We shouldn't retweet or send messages that clearly violate other people's privacy. We should not push people to expose more than they're comfortable with. And we should take care of our children, that kind of thing. I think one of the things that has struck me about these last few weeks in the United States with the incident of the capital is how much we rely on culture to make sure that laws and really the rule of law works well. If culture doesn't fit in, then it's going to be very hard.
0: Yeah, I agree about that. And as I say, that was the biggest impact of your book on me was this understanding that unless as a culture, we recognize the value and importance of privacy and what we give up when we give up privacy, whether it's in our own lives or as a society, unless we get that and really understand it, then regulators or anybody else is going to be facing an uphill battle. We have to know what it is we are losing in order to value it. Krista, thank you so much for writing the book. I recommend Privacy is Power to anybody. It's a short book, but it's incredibly punchy and powerful. And as I say, the final chapter will also tell you what you individually can do to make yourself less a victim of the data economy. Krista, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Matthew. It was a pleasure.
0: That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. But we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it. And we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the Fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.